Thank you for those of you who let me know. I'm reading the Bible. I'm diving into God's Word. And I'm seeing what, what the good that it does. And I'm so encouraged by picking up the Word every day. That's what, what the Word of God does. And we need to be in it. We need to know the truth. The truth that comes from a foundation given to us by God. And once we know Jesus Christ and we begin to, to learn who He is, we'll see a God, that we have a God that does the impossible. Absolutely. There is nothing too big for the power of God to take care of. He is a God that can take your deepest heartache and can fix it, can heal it. He can take your, your problem, your thing that seems like, where am I going to get the solution for this? How will this ever happen? And you see that you have no place to turn. We've got a God that does the impossible. Amen. And he does the impossible in many, many different ways. One of the things that, that I think about that is a miracle that only God can do. I believe that someone who is caught in the midst of a sinful life and, and they are stuck in the mire of sin and they are addicted to some sin and it is destroying their life and ruining their life. The only way, the only way that a miracle can happen and that person's life can be changed for eternity is by the power of Jesus Christ. I believe that's the only way. And I believe that's one of the biggest miracles. We have a God that started his relationship with us with miracles when in the beginning he created this world just by speaking. I believe that wholeheartedly. It was a miracle. He continued those miracles when he sent his son to this earth. And I was, my mind was just spinning this week, spinning this week, spinning this week. Especially as I was putting this together. I began to think about the miracles in the Old Testament. And the things that happened in the Old Testament. And I tried to think of a miracle that didn't point to Jesus Christ. I couldn't come up with one. I tried to think of a story in the Old Testament that didn't either show us the need for God's salvation on the cross or one that didn't directly point to the authenticity of Him being the Savior of the world. I couldn't come up with one. It all points to Jesus. So why shouldn't we in the church, everything that we do, point back to the cross and to Jesus? It's all about our Savior. And throughout this book, this book of John, its point, its purpose can be found in John chapter 1, in verse 12. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Or in John 20, 31, where it says, But these things are written, that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in His name. And that's so true in John chapter, chapter 6. Where Jesus, we find this guy, Jesus, I believe Him to be the Lord and Savior of human of all of our lives. 
And he has died on the cross and he has authenticated himself. By this point in the book, he's already authenticated himself enough for me. But if you're still maybe questioning, just keep reading this book. It's very hard to get through the book of John and not see that Jesus shouted from the rooftops over and over again that he was the son of God and did things to back them up. And he leaves it in your lap and says, what will you do with my son? We have a God that does the impossible and is still doing the impossible today. And today he uses the the impossible to train his disciples and authenticate himself as God. Because he does things that, that only the Son of God would do. And all the Old Testament screams that. And as Jesus began to do these things, a multitude followed him. In the coming weeks, as we dive deeper and deeper into this story, we're going to find that that's a very, very important fact, is that this multitude had followed him. Where they followed him? To the Sea of Galilee. Kind of in the book of John, we're bouncing back between Jesus and Jerusalem. Jesus in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus in the sea, up near the Sea of Galilee. And here he is at the Sea of Galilee. And why were they following him? We read it just a moment ago. They were following him because of the miracles that he had performed. Last night, there were a bunch of people um, that were, it seemed like every time I turned on and heard something in the news, they were talking about a big fight, a big fight, a big fight. And they wanted to see these two juggernauts going at it, fighting each other, blows and fists and I don't I don't really enjoy just seeing people beat each other in the face. It's not my really my thing. Um, but everybody wanted to go because they wanted to see the fight. And they all gathered to see something. They'd heard about about this tower, towering giant of a man and this quick, uh, hard-hitting boxer. Well, here they'd come to see Jesus because he had been performing miracles. People show up to hear an impressive speaker. To see someone perform magic tricks. But they had come and they, they wanted to see Jesus, the Jesus who would perform miracles. And my, my second my next question is, is when? And it was during the time of Passover. And we we remember we'd already talked about this year, as we've been looking through the book of John, is that this is not the first Passover that we've seen Jesus in. It, it it's very interesting. You do a study. And you look at Jesus' life, what he did for Passover. Oh, the first, his first Passover, he's down in Jerusalem and he drives out money changers. And you get to this Passover and, and here he is in Galilee and, and he just does this amazing miracle that, that just points to him as the promised one that had been promised in the Old Testament. The Passover happens in spring. And so there's lots of grass around, and Jesus has these, these people sit down. And as Jesus is the center of attention, he has a conversation with one of his disciples. And that disciple is Thomas. Uh, excuse me, Philip. And we have been looking at different disciples, and we've been putting these tombstones. And you go, Michael, what, why, why does he have a tombstone I put the tombstone up there for a reason and for a purpose. Whenever we see someone in the Gospel of John, they kind of always have, 
They're doing the same thing. They all relate to Jesus the same way. And I think we can find a little bit of ourselves in each one of the people that we see in the Gospel of John. And you might be able to relate to one. Whether it's Nicodemus, the scholar who is searching for answers. Or if it's Thomas, who we've known and we've been taught doubting Thomas. And we just see how Jesus reacts to all of these people. And maybe somebody here is a Philip. And let's take a look at Philip and Jesus' interaction in John chapter 6. In verse 4 it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. And so as we look at Philip, you might say, okay, Pastor Scott, what are we supposed to learn about Philip? Well, Philip, if we were to put something on his tombstone, if we were to say, what should we remember about this guy as we read through this book? Is that Philip was the guy that Jesus, him and Jesus, they go back and forth. Sometimes Philip asks Jesus questions. Sometimes Jesus asks Philip questions. They just kind of had this curiosity relationship. And sometimes you might open the Bible. You might search the scriptures. You might hear someone teach something. You might have questions. You might be curious. What's the answer to this? What's going on here? Let me tell you. We've got a God who is okay with questions. And he wants questions to be asked. And I believe that if you tackle the scripture, he will answer those questions. He will guide you a little bit closer to him. And he might do it in a way that you might not expect. It says here that Jesus asked Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And when Jesus asked Philip that question, what's it say right after that? Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do before he even began. So Jesus might take the opportunity in your life, if you have a question, if you have something you'd like to know about him and about his word, maybe your question is, does God really have the power to answer prayer? God might go, oh, I'll show you. You'll be amazed at what I do. I'll, I'll enlighten you to this fact. And I'll do it in a way that goes beyond what you could ever imagine. Those of us who have spent much time spending time with Jesus, we know that he is faithful. We know that if we have questions, he's able to answer them. Starting in this book and with his words and through prayer, and through meditation and through spending time with others in, in our relationship with God. And the question here, they asked to Philip, 
is where can we buy enough bread to feed everyone? I could almost see Philip going, Jesus, look at this. Where are we going to get the food? Remember, we've got a God that does the impossible. And if this were, if I were Philip, I, 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 I don't know. How can we do it? But one of the things that we have to remember about God is that he didn't come to this world to heap burdens and stress and anxiety and the weight of sin in the world on top of us. He came to set us free. And he's going to do miracles. And he's going to do the impossible. So that in the end, we know the end of the story that Jesus is going to take care of us. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And so now let's take a look at, at Philip's response. He said 200 denarii would not be enough. to. And so you go, that doesn't mean a hill of beans to me. I have no idea what you're talking about when you say 200 denarii. Well, let's make this kind of simple. A denarii is a day's wage. And I know that a day's wage means a lot to a lot of different people, a lot of people. Uh, for everybody in this room, it probably means something different. So I went and did a little bit of research and a day's wage is roughly $72.50. I can almost hear Art Eshelman going. You want to know what a day's wage was when I started working? Right, Mr. Eshelman? <laughs> and so let's just put that in the figure. 200 days worth of work at that much. $14,500. Minimum wage. Now, think about it. If we we're going to put on a meal for over 5,000 people for this church... I, I think that'd be pocket. Remember, he said that wouldn't even be enough to just feed these guys a little. That'd be like less than $3 a meal, right? Is God able to do the impossible? Absolutely. Is it okay that Philip, Jesus has questions for Philip, and Philip has questions back for Jesus? Yes, because we got a God that does the impossible to answer your questions. Our God does these types of things. And at that moment, you probably know this story. But there's a boy, there's a man that comes to Jesus and he brings a boy. And this boy's name is Andrew. Let's look and read, continue reading in John chapter 6. It says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five bar barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? And so I've got another tombstone here because we ran into another guy, Andrew. And Andrew's kind of interesting. Because Andrew's one of these guys. He's known by who his brother is. You ever met somebody like that? Or maybe you're that guy. People, whenever they introduce you, you they say, Oh, this is John and he's Bill's brother. Oh, he's Bill's brother. 
does that make you feel? You're like, well, you don't care about me. You just care about my brother. And sometimes I wonder if that's how Andrew felt. Because read, read the New Testament. We all know about Peter. We all know his stories. But then there's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And here's my point. And here's, I think, the point that John is trying to get across in this book. Andrew played just as much of a part in the story of Jesus Christ as Peter did. He was so important to the message that Christ was trying to get across. Because guess what? Who's the guy that brought Peter to Jesus in the first place? Andrew. Is that important? Very, very, very important. And every time I see this guy, Andrew, in this gospel, you know what he's doing? He's bringing people to Christ, one person at a time. You hear about church services where hundreds of people walk the aisle and are accepting Christ and they need to get and bring an extra counselor. That's awesome. That's amazing. But isn't it just as important on a Sunday morning if one person accepts Jesus Christ and is on their way to heaven? You could share the gospel thousands of times. But what a blessing when one person accepts Christ. Don't overlook that as trivial. I think bringing one person to Christ, and here he is bringing this boy to Christ. We don't know if this boy uh, this boy accepted Jesus Christ or his personal Savior. I don't see anything that says that this boy believed. But Andrew was still doing his job. He was bringing that one to Christ. And if you were walking down the road and you're talking to your friend, talking to a work, work, somebody you work with, and you say, I'd like to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. And you get the opportunity to share, share the gospel with someone, praise the Lord. If they accept it, praise the Lord. Rejoice in heaven because you brought somebody to Christ. And be like Andrew. Just keep doing it repeatedly and repeatedly. If you brought one to Christ, to be like, oh, I'm Andrew, so I'm done. No, it's not, it doesn't work like that. Because we want everybody that we, we meet, that we can run into, to come to know the Christ. So maybe you go, I'm not a Peter. I can't get up in front of thousands of people and share the message of the gospel. That's not who God created. Well, be an Andrew. Share the gospel with somebody that God has laid on your heart. Don't miss the opportunity. This boy brought with him such a, like, this five loaves and two small fish. I love the fact that John had to point out they were small fish. Right? We're not sitting here talking. And I, I try to tell the kids, we picture a light, a loaf of bread. And we picture what we buy at the grocery store. I always tell, no, not picturing five loaves of bread. This is this boy's lunch. This is before the invention. We hear, you know, this is the best thing since sliced bread. This isn't sliced bread. This is just five little biscuits and two fish. This boy probably would have gobbled it up and been hungry ten minutes later. Right? Jesus gave thanks. And he distributed the food. And I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I just want to remind us how important it is. Um, 
We've had basketball in, in our house the last couple of months. And I'm, I enjoy watching my kids play basketball. Enjoy watching my, on tomorrow they have their last game. But I'm glad it's done. You know why? Because one night there'll be a practice and the practice gets done at 5 o'clock and another night 6 o'clock and, and then they got a game. and So we're eating on the go. It's fun, but I miss, okay, guys, it's 5 o'clock. It's dinner time. Let's sit. Let's give thanks to the Lord, and let's spend time around the table. I want to encourage you, if that's something that you're missing with your spouse, with your family, turn the TV off, sit down, pray, eat your meal, and enjoy time together. Give thanks to the Lord and do that. So then it says, Jesus gave thanks and distributed. As he he did this, some people who want to downplay the impossible things that God is able to do have said that what Jesus did here is that as people saw the generosity of this boy, and they began to begin passing out food. They said, oh, look at how generous that boy was. He gave his food to Jesus. And they pulled out in their pockets and they had their lunch. And they began to pat. No. Every indication that I see is that this is a miracle from heaven. And what happened is that this food was made out of. Of nothing. The word the word that is used often go with that is ex nihilo. I, I love the fact answers in Genesis has promoted that word and um, they have done a good job at getting that out there for people to understand that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he did it out of nothing. God spoke and this planet came into existence. God spoke in the trillions of stars that are out there came into existence and he did it with a word and he's that kind of powerful and he's that kind of powerful for you today and that's the kind of thing that he did here there are 12 baskets left over and i i have been stating that jesus has seven miracles in this book Seven being a number that's often associated, we often see in the Bible that God uses it as evidence of perfection. And there are seven things that Jesus uses, seven signs that he uses to point that he is the Christ. And I believe that this is number four out of seven. And you can see I've got two blanks in there because we haven't hit those ones yet. But he turned water into wine. He healed the nobleman's son. He healed the lame man. He fed 5,000 and brought the boat to shore in in John chapter 6 here. And the last one from John chapter 2 is the sign deferred. That means save for later. Jesus stated at the beginning, here, you're going to know that I am God when you see this. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It says right in John chapter 2, nobody understood that day. But the disciples, all of a sudden, when he rose from the dead, they're like, oh, yeah, remember all those years ago when Jesus did that? 
What an amazing God. And our God, He is our God. And this is just one of those things. He is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. And this is another way that He used to prove to the world that He was God. And for years I've been teaching and and trying to look back at this and as I was doing a little bit of extra study this week, there was something that I, that I learned about how this, and like I said, I was just spinning, spinning, spinning all week. This identified Jesus as the Messiah, and it referred back to some miracles in the Old Testament. One of them that I found fascinating came from 2 Kings chapter 4. Let's look back in 2 Kings chapter 4. This is something I learned this week, and I just had to throw it in here for us to look at this morning. In 2 Kings chapter 4, in verses 42 to 44, it says, Then a man, in 2 Kings chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, it says, Then a man came from Baal, Shalisha, and brought a man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? Shall I set this before one hundred men? He said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. I've read that passage of scripture. I've read John chapter 6. I've looked and studied John chapter, uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 and John chapter 6. It wasn't until this week that as I was studying that somebody brought this up, and I put it together, and I go, oh, Boy, look at, look at those two stories and how closely they match. This is one of those ways that, that the New Testament author, John, says, look back at this Jesus. He, if, when you see this guy coming and he's doing these types of things, you'll know that someone special has arrived. As a matter of fact, if you look and you study closely, you'll see that the word boy in John chapter 6 is the same word used for boy in 2 Kings chapter 4. That's kind of interesting. It's the only place in the New Testament that that word's used. Did you notice that they both had barley loaves? You notice the question that Elisha asked and what Philip asked, and that there'd be food left over at the end. It's just another way that God is saying, hey, I'm the same person that you find, the same God that you find working through Elisha back in 2 Kings. Look at the, those phrases, the barley loaves, that there'd be stuff left over. This truly was the prophet who was to come into the world. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it talks about this also. Let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will rise up, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. He is the prophet who would come in the world. He does stuff just like Moses was doing in the wilderness. And the people realize this. They, they, they had this all figured out. And they were for, ready to prepare and make this guy king. I look at their reaction. I look at the Jewish people's reaction. And I say, this wasn't somebody who said, who prayed to God and he prayed for the food and everybody just thought, out of the goodness of their heart, that they just all start sharing. Because I look at the people's reaction, and they go, this is a guy who's like Moses, providing manna in the wilderness. And their, their reaction tells the whole story. It's not manna, but to these people, it might as well have been. You, got, you might say, well, what is manna? Manna we find in Exodus chapter 16. Verses 4 and 5. It's the bread from heaven. You know, it literally means, it says right in there, it means, what is it? This is the same Messiah that we find in Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6. The God who sets a feast before you. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 25. Like I said, try finding some place in the Old Testament that doesn't point to your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you'll just find that Jesus is written all through the pages that were written all these thousands of years ago. In Isaiah chapter 25, in verse 6, it says, And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lace, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lace. Our God is a God who sets feasts before us. He's the God who, we, we love this phrase, He's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our God provides. There are times in this world that God allows people to be blessed with abundance. Look at guys like Abraham, Job. There are also times where God allows us to go through the hard times of life. The same God is the same God during the lean years and through the trying years. He is the God of the impossible. 
Don't let either one be something, a, 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 a barricade, a wall that keeps you from a great relationship with God. He's a God that wants to take your concerns and take your needs. He wants to do something amazing with it. He's a God that does the impossible. He makes something out of nothing. One of the things we got to remember, though, is don't, don't force God. Don't force God. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. There, there's... There's a, there's a statement that I don't, you know, in science class and physics class, I always, we talk about force equals mass times acceleration. Every year there's like, Mr. Wilson, what happens if an unstoppable force collides with an immovable object? Then I'll get the next kid. Mr. Wilson... If God's all-powerful, can he make a rock that's too big that he can't lift it? Got an answer. said, God is the unstoppable force, and he is the immovable object, and he's smart enough not to collide with himself. Right? That settles it for me. I mean, they might still have the question. They might still think, try to think about that. You know, couldn't, but I don't care. God is my unstoppable force. God is my immovable object. Let's not try to force him. These guys, as they see Jesus doing these miracles, they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 18, and they get as excited as I do. They're like, this is Jesus of the old. This is manna guy that we've been waiting for. He makes food out of nothing. Awesome. They see him as the Daniel chapter 7 king. They didn't get the whole picture. And they didn't realize God's timing was important. They had missed that he was also Isaiah chapter 53, the man of sorrows. Jesus' time had not yet come. The book of John, over and over and over again, it talks about Jesus' life, it talks about Jesus Christ's life. His hour, his hour, his hour, his hour, his hour. He knew what the mission was. He knew why he was there. And nothing was going to stop his time and his plan. He departed alone. He took time time alone. And... Um, I looked at that, and sometimes pastors, they put something into what they want to talk about on Sunday morning that, that like hits them right square in the heart. If Jesus took time alone, what makes you think you're so important that you don't need to take time alone to spend with God also, right? Take a look at your lives, all of you, all of us, every single one of us. If, if Jesus Christ had to, in the midst of people trying to force him and trying to push his hand and stuff, had to get alone and had to spend time alone, what makes us so think that we're so important that we don't have to do the same? 
The next thing that we see is we see that his in John chapter six, we know the story after they got the baskets of food and they tried to force Jesus to be king. The disciples go and they get in a boat and they start rowing. And I'd like us to take a look at the eye of the. Do you see what I put up there? The eye of the storm. I did that on purpose. I wasn't trying to make anybody upset with my bad spelling. Okay, that's up there on purpose. Let's take a look in John chapter 6 again. And let's look at the eye of the storm. In John chapter 6, in verse 15, it says, Therefore, when Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and, and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over towards the sea, over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them in his eye, Do not be afraid. And they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at shore where they were going. I don't fault these disciples. They did what was natural. They went fishing. They were fishermen. They, they did what came natural to them. The Sea of Galilee is six miles wide. And they were rowing to the other side. And they had rowed about three or four miles. So you get the picture. They were in the middle of the sea. Shore was not near. And the storm came. I believe that this was a supernatural storm. I don't believe that this was a normal storm that would have popped up. These were experienced fishermen. And you would think that they would know that a storm was going to pop up. And if it did, they would know how to handle it. But they, we read in other Gospels, they were afraid for their lives. And then they see Jesus walking on the water. We've heard this story a, a number of times. But there's something I want you to notice. There's no... Mention of Peter. Yesterday I went to, to look at VBS programs. And as they were looking at the VBS programs, they were showing one of them. And they showed their little video that they were going to show the kids. And here's Jesus walking on the water. What's the natural thing that you see? Peter walking out and he takes his eyes off Christ and he begins to sink. It's not mentioned by John. No mention in this book of Peter ever walking on the sea. I'll tell, I'll tell you why I think and why a lot of other people think that this is the focus of John's book is Jesus. And that yesterday in that video, the focus was what Peter did when he took his eyes off. And that's important. God included it in the scripture. But John's point is to keep our focus on Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus, and the focus here is on what Jesus does. There's a word we're learning on sun, on Wednesday nights called theophany. It's when God shows up and does the impossible. And when Jesus says, it is I, be not afraid. Note his words. It is I. 
if we know the great I am, the guy that Moses talked to, I am that I am have sent you. And we'll be safe in the middle of the storm. And we'll face the impossible situations of this world and it will be okay. Don't be afraid. Why? Jesus. That's it. End of story. Don't be afraid. Jesus. What's happening in Washington? Don't be afraid. You got Jesus. You get arrested for your faith? Don't be afraid. Jesus. You face persecution. Your family's falling apart. You, you've got difficult situations. You don't have to be afraid. You've got Jesus. That doesn't mean things will be easy. It doesn't mean that there won't be tears that are shed. Remember this the verse that I saw we read in Psalm 56 this morning? I've collected all your tears in the bottle. You ever, my favorite, favorite part of this section, Jesus feeds 5,000 and brings the boat to shore, is immediately they were at shore where they went. Where were they? In the middle. And Jesus steps in the boat. Boom. They're right where they needed to be. Right at shore. Wow. That's the kind of power your God has. He can do that. He does the impossible. He does it all the time. Our God is great. He does the impossible. If you're, if you're in the midst of the storms, he is the eye of the storm. If you have a need, he is the God who provides. He does the impossible. And this whole book points to no matter where you are, no matter what your problems are, King Jesus will take care of you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being our Savior. I thank you that you've come to set us free. Lord, you've come to provide for us. Lord, when we have nothing, you're still King Jesus. When we're in the middle of the storm, you're still King Jesus. Lord, I thank you that no matter what trial, no matter what circumstance everyone in this room is facing, you're still King Jesus and you've got your perfect time and your perfect way. You can take care of it all. You're a great God. I thank you that you are the unstoppable force and the immovable object. We can't force you beyond what you're willing to do. Be with us today. Grow our faith. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.